Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Jay Richards, Ph.D., a forensic psychologist and expert witness with over 30 years of experience in diagnosing, managing, and studying psychopaths, sex offenders, and mentally disordered offenders. He is currently on the faculty at University of Washington and Seattle University and appears as a psychopathy expert on a variety of media, including NPR, Dateline, and The Washington Post. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Richards. Glad to be here. Well, we're going to discuss, today we're going to talk about the controversy surrounding the former president of the Spokane, Washington chapter of the NAACP, Rachel Dolezal, who came under fire for misrepresenting herself as black after her biological parents told reporters that their daughter is white. Um, big controversy. So you are the expert, and the expert in psychopaths, uh, having had, a, what, 30 years' experience, I guess I said. So today, you're going to uncover for us the psychology behind uh, Rachel Dolezal's claims, and why is it causing such a controversy? I think things have died down a little, but it seems to kind of ignited this uh, uh, national controversy about you know, telling the truth and what is the truth and, and uh, lots of various issues, I guess. So what is, what's the controversy and why do we care? Uh, well, I think one of the interesting things about it is how quickly it dropped out of, you know, the, the intense focus it had uh, right after the AME church shootings. Uh, the story, you know, was eclipsed for a while. And I think it's because it, it, hits that zone of race, and it, it hits it in a way, <clears throat> it's all story, that is sort of quirky and <clears throat> comical. People make fun of it, um, and it's something that people feel that they can comfortably uh, wrap their heads around and, and uh, uh, you know, have a little fun with. And then compared to the other, um, you know, incident that uh, was a catalyst for so much pain and and concern about what's going on in our country, especially in the South. So I think the stories are related because, it, you know, this conversation about race that the, um, you know, the incidents in New York, Baltimore, you know, police uh, shootings and brutality uh, accusations and, and actual, you know, footage of it. So I think they're related. Uh, from a psychological point of view, I have to say, I've, obviously I haven't, uh, you know, interviewed Rachel Dolezal and, um, not much has been released about her background, but but nonetheless, some things show up. And I think um, <clears throat> before pursuing too much about you know what she is psychologically, I think that we really have to ask this question, as you brought up, what is the truth here? And, and here I would quote African American writer John Weidman, uh, who said all stories are true. So you know, as in his work, he, he pursues that. Uh, it's uh, uh, actually a Nigerian proverb: all stories are true. And it's the issue of like, well, what, what truth are you presenting? What good is that truth to other people? And I think her case brings up this issue of what do we mean by race? And, um, you know, in addition to being a uh, forensic psychologist, I'm African-American. I'm a very light-skinned African-American. I look like a mixed-race person, although I'm not. 
Um, and some people don't believe me when I tell them I'm black or I'm African-American, and there's a discussion about that, and that's happened from my childhood. And recently I had a chance to talk to my uncle, who's hitting 89, and in his entire life he's been asked these questions about what are you. And in fact, most recently his physician came to see him uh, for a foot problem, and the physician said, you mind if I ask you a question? And my uncle said, well, I know what you're going to ask me. I'm a human being just like you. Uh, so I think this question about what is race and what is the truth, it, you know, it comes up in her case. Um, and she does a lot of, you could say she exploits the issue. She plays around with the issue. She's provocative with the issue. But my, my own sense is that uh, when she says she's, her identity is African-American, her identity, she doesn't say it, her identity is black. I believe it. I believe it on face value that that is her belief, that is her uh, identity, or at least a large part of it. And so the question gets, you know, raises like, how did she get to that point that she she had this conversion? Well, most people don't have a, a racial conversion experience. We expect that to happen in religion, uh, where people have an identity ex- experience and, and they convert to a religion. <clears throat> but we don't expect them to do that with race. Um, but this is not a first. You know, this is not a, a especially unique thing. Back in the um, 1850s, there was a fairly wealthy uh, man in, on the East Coast of the United States who lived a double life. <clears throat> One is a black man, although he was not African-American. And he did this, according to him, to maintain uh, African-American family. So he lived with that family uh, for a certain part of the year, uh, and then he lived with his white family. He was wealthy. He was an explorer, actually. So he was wealthy enough to maintain this, this life, and he actually claimed to be, um, when he was black, a conductor, because that was sort of, at that time, a, uh, a train conductor, sort of a high-status job for a, a free black person, whereas, in fact, he wasn't. So he lived in his whole life among, in African-American society, and he, he claimed it was because he had this love of this black woman. is the only way he could have this relationship uh, openly and, you know, on an extended basis. So it, it's, it's not really a, a first. Uh, there was even a French author uh, named Boris Vivan who uh, pretended to be a black writer living in France and wrote a novel that became incredibly popular. They were making a movie of it. Um, and it, he was his cover was blown because um, a someone in Paris strangled uh, a woman um, in the manner that he had portrayed in his book, and the book was right at the bedside with the passage underlined. So, so this led to a lot of scrutiny. They found out well, Boris Vivan is a white Frenchman pretending to be an African American writer living in Paris. Um, and he did that because at that time, uh, African-American writers like uh, Richard Wright were very popular. They were involved with uh, Sartre and the other existentialists. In fact, Sartre had uh, uh, published an excerpt of this novel uh, by Boris Yvonne. Um And it was sort of a mini scandal about you know the meaning of race because – uh, Richard Wright was, uh, you know, at that time flirting, a famous uh, African-American writer was flirting with communism, and that was an like, international issue. Um, and uh, Boris Yvonne sort of wove through this. So it's an interesting thing. Um, but I do think there are psychological issues involved in Rachel Gozal's situation. And I really think ultimately, and it sounds like a cliche from a psychologist, I think it's ultimately 
about family, uh, like so many things in her life. I, I know people have <clears throat> accused her of uh, doing this for uh, sort of uh, opportunistic uh, goals. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I can assure you from my point of view, the, the, the advantages of being uh, African-American or black are not so great that, that uh, um, a talented, resourceful person like Rachel Dolezal would, would get gain great advantages from, from becoming black. And, in fact, Dr. Richard, I think, is that the same thing? I mean, you've given us a history, I think, which is, uh, which is very interesting. You know, obviously, Rach, she's not the first person to have done this. Um, but is it the same if you are Jewish and you pose as a Catholic? I mean, is that, is, is, is that a similar kind of a situation? Well, that's an interesting question. Is, is being Jewish a race? You know, it used to be considered a race. Uh, is being um, Italian a race? In the United States, it used to be considered a race. Um, when people in, in the United States talked about races during the 19th century and early 20th century, they did include blacks, the Negro, but they are also talking about the various white races, and they had them all you know, in a hierarchy. And Jews were considered a different race. I'm looking at a, a book in front of me called The Colors of Jews, Racial Politics and Radical Diasporism uh, by Kantrowski. I think it's like a 19... 19- 90, um, 2007 book, actually, um, that, that addresses this very issue. And on the cover, they've got um, people of all different colors, um, but they're Jewish. And it is, it is an interesting thing that, that being Jewish is defined partly by genetic heritage, partly by historical heritage, partly by belief. And from that point of view, uh, someone converts to being Jewish. Um, and uh, the, the genetic issue becomes less important. Uh, similarly, African—I'm uh, sorry—Native Americans, often whites, convert to being Native American. I see this often with the offender population I work with. Uh, when people have burned out, they burned all their bridges in their own society, their own families, and they have a renewal by joining the Native American spirituality and finding that they're not rejected by the Native Americans. And oddly enough, in some of these prison circles, the Native American circles, which is part of their religious practice, are mainly white people who really had no history uh, prior to, you know, their involvement with it in in a uh, criminal justice setting as sort of a way of reinventing themselves. So, you know, similarly, uh, Rachel reinvented herself and of course, we have movements throughout history. You know, the history of the Iberian uh, Peninsula, with you know, for Spain and Portugal, two huge waves of <clears throat> first the Jews, over half a million, being forced to become Christians and in hiding and make, making this conversion, and then later the, the Muslims, over uh, a million, uh, going into hiding. <clears throat> and in fact. Uh, one historical analysis is that that really is where we start seeing the, the invention of racism as it is now, where there's a, some sort of substance, some sort of essence that is race, and that it can be uh, ferreted well, out. Is race a political construct or a social construct? We constructed it. I mean, I, we are all part. We are all the human race, right? So we, as you say, we 
like the idea of rate, we change it depending on, you know, there was a Jewish race, now there isn't. I mean, we kind of like it, it sort of evolves, but it's really a construct that we create, a social construct. It is, and it isn't, you know, because it, <laughs> it, it depends on, in part, on physio- physical characteristics related to genetic inheritance, you know, what part of the world um, your uh, ancestors are from and what genes are in that area. Uh, the reality of race from that point of view, you can't tell by just looking at people. You have to do genetic testing. For example, uh, in the middle of West Africa, there's a town uh, where people have a gene that's nowhere else in humanity. So if you look at everybody else in Africa, they all look, you know, at that part of Africa, they look the same. They're a similar culture, but they, these people actually have a gene that puts them in a different racial group, quote unquote. Uh, but I think uh, when we talk about cultural significance, psychological significance, and race, we're talking about a social construct. And racism, we're talking about something that was <clears throat> invented and evolved in the Middle Ages in Europe <clears throat> and in um, connection with um, the Arabian Islamic tradition of slavery, which was lifelong servitude, which is rare in Africa. Um, and servitude where your children could become slaves, which was, again, not an African tradition. Um, so those two uh, experiences, the, the medieval experience with Jews, anti-Semitism, and the Ara- uh, Arabian Islamic um, experience of how they manage slavery, uh, especially of people uh, from sub-Saharan uh, Africa, um, help create this thing we call slavery. I'm sorry, not slavery, we call uh, racism. And, of course, the institution of slavery had a lot to do with it. Slave trade was reinforced and made possible by an ideology of racism. Um, And and so, yeah, I I agree that that it's a social construct. Now, what may be a little less so is color prejudice. Color prejudice predates um, racism, and it, it exists to some extent in every almost every world society where there, there's some differentiation made based on color. And some people believe this is based on sort of one of those uh, mind bugs, you know, sort of things built into our mind that are tricks that we associate light with the sun and, and with daylight and, we associate, and with good things. And we associate dark with night and all the dangerous things that happen at night, like uh, the big, you know, cats, lions, and tigers that prowl around and grab people in the dark, and that this this sort of association uh, led to this this view of of lighter being better, darker being bad, uh, and that's generalized through really most world cultures. Yeah, true in South America. The whiter you are, the higher status you have. You you know the uh, in, in uh, South America, Southeast Asia. I think the Cambodians are the darkest, and are the, and so uh, you know on the soci social scale they are at the bottom, and the Chinese are the whitest, and they're at the top of the scale. And it's it, yeah, it is. It's kind of consistent throughout the world. It's, right. I mean, we even name parts of the world about the color of the people. Melanesia, you know, that term Melanesia it really means that the islands where the darker people are. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so he was like this. We designate a whole part of the world that way. Um, yes, it's, it's, uh, 
in South America and Mexico, you, you see the result of an intentional uh, creation of groups of people by the Spanish. The Spanish strategy was to create a new people who would be a new mixed people who would administrate, uh, be the administrators of the new world. And they would be a people who were confused. They would be a people who were, uh, would not relate uh, to the to the local people because they would be admixed. They would be the uh, offspring of rape uh, and uh, slavery, uh, and they would have ties with Spain and the pure uh, the pure bloods, which is the, t- the term uh, that the Spanish use. The pure bloods would they would have relationships, but they would be uh, of lesser rank. Uh, as in you know, of course, in Europe, bastards were had relationships with. Uh, the, the, the fathers they were uh, spawned by, but they were in a second-class status. Um, sometimes you know, Jew, rights. I, which I am, I think it's interesting because there's a little bit of a twist there. I mean, the German Jews have very high status, but the Sephardic Jews, who are very dark, also are high status. You know, there's a, there's a because there was a certain degree of, of success and wealth that's associated with their class. So, but they were very dark, are and or are. And, and they're they were from part where everybody was dark. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't really matter what you know. Uh, this 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 distinction of color sort of disappears where people are primarily the same color, like in Japan. Uh-huh. Although you know the one small minority in Japan, uh, the Anu, I think it's called, uh, that group has been almost exterminated. They're they're very light skinned people. They have European like features, although they're not European. They're closer to the Aboriginal people in Australia genetically, but they they they're white uh, and they have fair hair uh, and they've been incredibly uh, discriminated against. And there, the color issue is reversed partly because the Ainu are um, primitive in a way. I mean, they, they have a backward culture. They 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 uh, sort of have hunter gatherer elements in their culture um and and because they were less technically adept you know that that issue overcome overcame at least this this sort of color perception uh psychology um so you have in japan you have this highly uh homogenous racial culture and then a small group of people who've been uh, you know, at the point of extermination, you know, at various points throughout history, but their roots date back um, probably to the first people of Japan, the first people who were there. Right, well, given the history and we've been of racism as we've been you know, discussing it, how does that fit into? Because I want to talk about this at least in the last ten minutes. What? How does that fit into Rachel Dolezal's truth or what? Why? You know, how does right. this? Yeah, because uh, to me uh, it seems like. I mean, you mentioned it earlier in the interview that it's probably all about family, but isn't it also about deception that we don't want to feel deceived? There's, or maybe I think there's that's also a piece of that. Well, I, I think our reaction to it is about deception, and I think you know my own view is I think she has a right to call herself black, but she doesn't have the right to tell people her parents aren't who they are and that there's some, you know, other, some black man she met, you know, 10 years ago, who is her father. Mm-hmm. It, it is deception and we do feel deceived, but I think part of it is we feel deceived and it makes us take a double look 
at the racial issue. And then there's the anxiety, the reality that we know this racial issue is um, fake. It, you know, the, our conceptions of it are fake, yet we live in a society that, where it's basically a caste a system based on race, not as, not as uh, rigid as the one in India, of course, was. Um, but it is a caste system that, that follows a person in every aspect of their life. Um, and this is why, you know, some African-Americans express resentment because Rachel uh, Dolezal, all she has to do is, uh, um, you know, change her hair. <laughs> and all of a sudden she's a white person with a tan uh, and then she can drop the tan. And you would think that when uh, Dylan uh, <clears throat> Roof went into that church, he probably wasn't looking for Rachel Dolezal um, or, or someone like her. I mean, you know, where she could duck a lot of the negative consequences from extreme racism to employment discrimination. So people express, you know, a good deal of resentment about it. But when you look at it from her point of view, I, I, I talked about the situation with a, a, a friend who's uh, West African, and he said that what he notices in it is that so many people have no empathy for Rachel Dolezal. And he immediately did. And he said, well, you know, she, there's something really difficult had to happen for her to have these kind, this kind of identification. And I think it may be, you know, to look at her family, um, what, what is the message that your family goes out and you know, has, gives you the message that, well, you know, there really aren't enough children here, there's not enough love, let's go out and get four uh, black boys. The message is, uh, Rachel, uh, you're a disappointment, you know, you're, you're really not what we want. Um, uh, we're going to go out and select these, these four black boys who become then your brothers. And so she lives in this mixed world and feeling like she doesn't quite uh, measure up. And the reason why I, th I think that that's <clears throat> some credibility to that was when she went to Howard university, she, her application there, uh, included a lot of materials that were, uh, African American and African oriented. Uh, especially visual things and paintings and, and drawings she had done. <clears throat> and she was accepted there. And when she got there, she felt that people were surprised and disappointed in her. She was disappointed she was white. And she actually, of course, filed a lawsuit there and lost miserably. Um, but I think this theme is that her new parents, the university, because when we're at a university, they become sort of our uh, parentis locus, um, that they were disappointed, and she's angry enough at them for their disappointment and her, their mistreatment of her as white that she sues them. And I think what you see in her family, uh, some sort of message she took, you don't know if her parents gave it or not, that you're not good enough, you're a disappointment, uh, we prefer these black boys. Uh, and this is her way to do it. And Ultimately, now she's getting back at them. So if she gets in the media and she says to her parents, you're not my parents. Uh, no one's done a genetic test to prove that I'm your, you know, you're my parents. And what, what dynamic is it that the parents decide to out their child? Well, one of them is that her, her brother has been charged with uh, the sexual molestation of a black girl. Um, and there's some concern the family, according to Dolezal, Rachel Dolezal, that this issue was going to come out, and that's why her parents outed her. Of course, I don't know anything about the truth of that, but what message is going on in the family? You know, black black girls are so preferred, her brother, you know, the, the last one, 
the black boys are there as so important. Um, so I think she has this, this huge confusion and conflict, and she solved that conflict by taking on this black identity. And um, she did an interview with Melissa Perry, Perry Harris on MSNBC, and it was like the two of them had found each other. They were soulmates because Melissa uh, Perry is from Harris Perry is from a, uh, a mixed family. Her, her father, I'm sorry, her mother is white, and her, her father's black, and she's she's actually was raised as a Mormon. Um, and, and and so she found this other person who had this complex sort of world, um, and and didn't seem uh, uh, Melissa uh, Perry didn't have, seem to have any problem with the fact that she uh, presented herself at, um, that Rachel presented herself as black um, and was was pushing that. Um, I think the deception issue is a real one. Uh, I think she had to think in a manipulative, deceptive way in order to accomplish, you know, positioning herself. Like, for example, there's this uh, evidence that she faked a hate crime uh, to get a certain kind of attention, uh, maybe to prove that the white society around her was racist uh, and, you know, and make her role at the NAACP more prominent. Um, In a little Spokane, which has a tiny black community. I think it's, it's like less than 3% of the people, although it's one of the first communities in, I think the first in the Northwest that elected a black male back, black uh, mayor back in the eighties. So it's an odd place. And in fact, here in Seattle, we've, uh, our, uh, county executive for about 10 years was a uh, black man from, uh, Spokane. Um, so there, you know, obviously there's a lot of racism in the Northwest. This is one of the places that, uh, Dylan Roof referred to um, there's a Northwest Front organization here, which is wanting to take one of the Northwest states as a white supremacist state. Um, but also there's these opportunities uh, for black people for leadership. And apparently uh, Rachel Dolezal decided that that's good for her. It's Well, uh, we only have a few minutes left. That's good for her. But can we take a look? What do you think about this, her in terms of the effect? has on us or the conversations that we have as a society about race? I mean, this, her particular example going forward. Well, I, I, well, I think it has uh, possibly a good uh, impact as that we start to interrogate what do we mean by this thing, race? Um, because I've had, for example, I've been interviewed about this and I've had uh, interviewers say, why would someone want to be black, except for these things like, oh, she got a scholarship or she got this high-level job. And they don't hear the implication in that. One is that why would someone, meaning that the only someone that count are white people, but why would someone white want to be black is what they really mean. Uh, and, you know, if you, what a question, you know, it's like, why would anybody want to be like you? Um, and, uh, because of your history of discrimination, your your history of uh, disadvantage of various kinds. Well, how about why would um, anybody want to be a woman? <laughs> that's another absolutely. question. Absolutely, I think I think that that's another issue people don't bring up. I think that with with Rachel Dolezal, she has a little bit what psychologists used to call the masculine protest. In other words, I think she saw these boys being preferred in her family and in, in her mind. Um, and, you know, in her classroom rooms, uh, students often complained that she preferred some students over others to the point that she would tell them to 
that, that they couldn't talk. She told some a Mexican student or a, a Hispanic student that, that they didn't look Hispanic enough to talk about Hispanic issues. Um, so she has this sort of possible, you know, what we used to call a masculine protest. You know, she sees that the males are preferred, doesn't know quite how to rebel against that. And uh, I think her rebellion is that I'm a, I'm a black woman. Uh, I can stand out and be that and, and, and sort of divorce and, and uh, renounce my family. Uh, I don't think it's neutral to that issue of uh, seeing herself as a, a white woman and not feeling empowered by that and then feeling like I can become black woman with, with emphasis on black identity and feel more powerful and effective in the world. Well, Dr. Richards, thanks so much for being on the show today. Very interesting conversation. And uh, obviously, I think this conversation will go forward. Um, I, I didn't mention, you have a new book. I just wanted to, listeners to know that, too. Silhouette of Virtue? Um, yeah, which, Silhouette of Virtue, a novel. It's a novel. It's a novel, And yeah. it's there on, on you know, of course, on uh, you can get yeah. it in the, the usual locations, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, that sort of thing. And it's set in the 1970s, and it deals a lot with these racial issues, including uh, a lot of emphasis on the role of Asians and and this mix of of race we're talking about. Yeah, and you can get that, as you said, on Amazon. And uh, as a website that we can go to, more information about the book and you? Yes, uh, jrichardsbooks.com. It's just J-A-Y, richardsbooks.com with no spaces. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to have to take a short break now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Think of the world. 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. 
Joining me this morning is Donna Jackson Nakazawa. She's the author of Childhood Disrupted, How Your Biography Becomes Your Biology and How You Can Heal. Uh, Donna is an award-winning science journalist, public speaker, and also author of The Last Best Cure, in which she chronicled her year-long journey to health. Childhood Disrupted was born through the author's own research to better understand the role her own childhood adversity played in the chronic health issues she faced as an adult. She also wrote The Autoimmune Epidemic, an investigation into reasons behind today's rising rate of autoimmune diseases. Uh, she's appeared on the Today Show, National Public Radio, ABC News. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Donna. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. It's a pleasure. Okay, so as I understand it, groundbreaking new research reveals that childhood emotional trauma can affect physical health in adulthood. That's That's exactly right. Okay. Uh, Is this a big uh aha? I mean, you are a scientist, a journalist. Is this something that we are we are just becoming aware of? We had no idea that this the trauma, and we have to kind of define emotional trauma also. What we're talking about, and and what kinds of traumas, I guess, affect our health our physical health in adulthood. So let's start with that. Um, What do you mean by that? Well, um, what we're talking about here is a body of research that's gone largely ignored by the medical community. It actually began in 1990. And between 1998 and now, over 1,500 studies have come out as part of a groundbreaking public health research project from the CDC and a a Kaiser Permanente, and that has followed over 17,000 individuals and looked at 10 categories of emotional and physical trauma and adversity in childhood and adult health outcomes and the relationship between these 10 types of adversity, which range from very mild experiences, what we might think of as mild, I should say, And what we commonly think of as trauma all lead to the same likelihood of adult health problems. So let me go through what those adversities are. Are we going to start with the mild ones? Yep, let's start with mild ones. Mild, seemingly mild. We should say seemingly mild. So these include things that are pretty common in American households. They include having an adult in the house who routinely puts a child down or humiliates a child, living with a parent suffering from depression or another mental health disorder, such as an anxiety disorder or bipolar, living with a parent who is addicted to alcohol or any other substance, and includes living in a family in which there's divorce or separation, and we might from that also add constant parental bickering, or the loss of a parent for other reasons, such as death. It also includes things we've been taught to think of as traumatic, of course, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional neglect, where a child doesn't have an adult really taking care of them, or physical neglect, not having enough food to eat or being taken to the doctor when it would be appropriate to be taken to the doctor and having a family member who's incarcerated. So you can see it runs a wide gamut here. So why are these different types of adversities related at the same level, regardless of what happened in the living room, 
to adult health outcomes. And this research has really delved into that relationship. And yet, to date, it's largely been ignored by the medical community. But how do you... I mean, as I'm listening to the examples from uh, the very traumatic to the ones that are considered mild, doesn't every family at least have some of, you know, at least a piece of one of those um, adversities that you described in their family? I so mean, it, yeah. Statistically, you're, you're right. 64% of Americans from middle-class backgrounds report at least one ACE score. Now, an ACE score is something that um, your listeners can actually do online. They can go to acestudy.org and they can take the ACE study for themselves and see what their ACE score is. So different levels of ACE scores, meaning how many categories of adversity you faced as a child, is also linked to the degree of illness that one has in adulthood. So for example, for each ACE score a woman has, her likelihood of being hospitalized as an adult for an autoimmune disease goes up 20%. Um, in terms of cancer, ACE, people with an ACE score, again, people who experience four or more categories of ACEs as a child, are four times more likely to have cancer. So we see these relationships, and they're really quite staggering um, to give you a few more, if you look at people who have, um, who later develop um, depression, those with an ACE score of four are 460% to face depression than someone with a score of zero. And there are gender differences here too. Women with ACE scores are twice as likely to later develop depression and autoimmune disease as are men because... Um, Researchers are looking now into why this is, and it's based really on the very different way in which the female immune system reacts to constant stressors as compared to men. So the research on this is going on in every lab across America, from Harvard to the University of Wisconsin to the best schools on the planet. And they're delving down and looking at a bio, on a biological level at how early stress changes our DNA changes the structure of the brain and the architecture of our immune system. And the results are pretty staggering. This is science in the making, and it goes way beyond the idea that this is emotional. It's physical. What about siblings, for instance? Like if you take, and and each sibling doesn't necessarily react to the stress in the same way. So let's say you have a family of five and you have three three siblings, and they, uh, you know, the adversity may be the bickering parents, let's say, and, and eventually they get divorced, but it affects, or does it? Can you, it affects each child differently, or each child ends up getting the same, you know, A score and, and getting <laughs> the same kind of disease 20 years later or 30 years later? Okay, so what a great question, and I devoted a whole chapter of the book to answering that because I okay. also had the same question. We all know people who seem to skirt by adversity and come out on top and people who seem to suffer more for it, and there are a number of genetic reasons for this that researchers are looking at very, very closely. 
Some of them have to do with gender. Girls do seem to be hit in different ways than boys. So boys may later show different signs, more behavioral issues, more attention deficit. Areas of the brain are affected differently in girls, tend to result more in depression and um, and immune system changes that lead to autoimmunity, fibromyalgia, um, chronic fatigue syndrome, migraines, irritable bowel disease, and so on. Men and women are hit pretty equally by cancer, but why, to get back to your question, why would it be that one sibling comes out and feels good and the other can't get over what happened when they were 10? Well, everybody carries a different set of what we call gene alleles or the expression of different genes that we have. And there are a group of genes which help moderate how reactive we are to the stressors around us. These are commonly referred to as the ORCID genes. And the reason for that is because some people possess what's known as short, short gene alleles for to get really technical, something called 5-HTTP. And this gene helps to regulate whether or not you're going to be able to see the events that are traumatic as water off the proverbial duck's back, or if you're going to be more like that orchid that needs a special environment. People with a short, short gene allele who experience ACEs are much more likely to develop chronic disease as adults. Those with what's called the short, long allele, they do a little better. And those with what's called the long, long gene allele of 5-HTTP, they're the dandelions. They're thought of by researchers, the dandelions, they go through life a little bit more easily. There are now dozens of these genes. That's just one example. And they make a profound difference in how well a child will be able to react to the toxic stressors around them. But one thing I want to add is it doesn't mean that some kids are better or stronger than others. It means that some kids are more in relationship with their environment than others. They're more sensitive to their environment. And research shows these are the same people as adults who are the most capable of change when they're in a positive environment. So there is a plus side to the downside. I think there's also, this is an experience, I mean, as a social worker, there are kids who are, and when you talk about environment, it can be the whole culture, or it also can be the family environment, that some kids are just born into the wrong environment. They don't fit into that environment. The parents do well with, you know, one or two of the kids because they kind of share the same, I don't know, maybe the same gene pool or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, and another one doesn't. And if they were in another family, they might flourish because it's, you know, a different set of genes. But I I just want to go back because can you be tested for this? I'm thinking about these little kids who may be in, you know, uh, situations with alcoholic parents or, I mean, um, you know, I mean, you can talk in the the real traumatic kinds of uh, situations, but can you, you know, at some point be tested to see what kind of... We're not quite there yet, but I think, and, and again, because every time somebody finds one more of these genes... Um, they show us a little bit more, and we don't know how many of them are out there. So it's going to take some time. Yes, you can be tested. Um, You would have to go to um, someone who does that kind of specialized testing. It wouldn't be in your local doctor's office. Um, But back to what you said, um, 
it's really important to say that different siblings have different relationships with different parents. So if a child has a particularly difficult relationship, let's say a firstborn son with his dad, um, for whatever reason, research shows that those relationships can be particularly difficult between dads and sons, particularly firstborn sons. So that boy might grow up with a sense of shame and blame or never being good enough, and that could be based on just many moments of micro-criticism throughout that child's development. Or a girl may have a particularly difficult relationship with her mother, who, as you said, so well, you know, they're just not in sync together. They just don't see the world the same way. Um, and those many years of micro-criticisms or feeling emotionally, emotionally neglected or that... Um, you know, the parents don't really understand them or get them or care about them or see them for who they really are, that is different for each and every sibling. So thank you for making that point. It's really an important one. It's interesting. I'm thinking of, I had just visited uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's uh, house in Hyde Park. Oh, I've been there. I've been there with my daughter, yeah. Yeah, and she's an example, you know, because I guess, you know, in light some this whole notion that you need to have mom and dad and two kids in order to flourish, which, uh, and I, you know, noted, I mean, her mother died when she was eight of diphtheria and her father died when she was 10 and she was just raised by her grandmother. And uh, look what happened to her. I mean, she became one of the most powerful uh, women in our history. So um, here's somebody who, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, you're right. And so we do have, um, there is a, there is a theory called the theory of desirable difficulty. And researchers have looked at public figures and found that the majority of our really successful public figures had a loss of a parent in childhood. The majority. Many, many presidents and people like Eleanor Roosevelt or Sonia Sotomayor on the Supreme Court had terrible trauma and loss in childhood. Jack Kennedy, Abraham Lincoln, Eleanor Roosevelt, um, the list goes on and on. However, when you look at the vast array of human beings, for nine out of ten, those traumas tip them into a less desirable life. But about one out of ten people turn that adversity into something far more extraordinary than your average human being. And it looks as if in many of these people's lives, there was some key, important, reliable adult who helped to make the world all right. And that's a really important point, that what we consider to be chronic, unpredictable, toxic stress, which all ACEs lead to. So let's put it this way. You could face a bear in the woods and your immune system reacts in fight or flight and you feel like, I've got to get out of here, or is this bear going to charge me? And it's a frightening situation. Ten minutes later, the the bear goes in the other direction, and you can relax. Your immune system comes back into a sense of homeostasis. That fight-or-flight feeling disappears. But what if the bear is circling the house every night? It's a parent coming home from the bar or knowing there's no one to take care of you and you're not sure how you're going to get to school tomorrow or a depressed parent who's hypercritical and you never know which day it's going to come. That child's brain is constantly on alert. 
that child's brain is sending messages that flood the immune system with a hormonal and chemical cocktail that is inflammatory. And over years and years, this changes their genetic expression and their likelihood of getting a range of diseases. But what is most protective for these children is one reliable adult who believes in them and sees them for who they are, and it may not always be apparent. So, um, so there, you know, we're at the beginning of understanding why this relationship is so extreme between early, even mild adversity and later adult health diseases. Well, this may be a stretch, but I have to ask you this question. So let's take women. I mean, and I think women as are still considered, uh, although we don't say that, second-class citizens in lots of areas, and we start out that way, kind of behind the eight ball. Um, so do you think that perhaps all the stress of being a woman in our culture, in our society, has led to the increase in breast cancer among women because it seems to be an epidemic? I mean, is there any kind of connection between the two? Well, you know, it's just amazing. You would, you're the only one who's asked me that question. I write about that in the book, The Growing Theory, that there is a societal stressor on women that is so subtle and so insidious and so constant and confronts a girl from the earliest ages, and that this stressor is a kind of chronic, unpredictable, toxic stress on the female immune system, which is more reactive to chronic, unpredictable stress than the male immune system for reasons that we could go into in a whole other show. Um, And that is a growing area of interest of mine, and I may be writing about that more soon. (laughs) Great. And when you do, you have to come back on the show because, yeah. Yes. I'm I'm particularly concerned for our young girls. Mm -hmm. Rates of chronic illness among our young girls and our teenage girls are skyrocketing on, on every front. And uh, I, you know, talk to lots of schools and groups, and there is a growing alarm to what is happening to the immune system of girls. And I think we've created a society in which the bandwidth for what it is acceptable to be as a young woman has become more and more narrow. And I would agree with you wholeheartedly. Jess, we have a few minutes left. So I know part of this, all you know, your research and et cetera, is based on your own personal history. So could you just give us, you know, obviously something happened in your journey um, that uh, affected your physical health. So can you just tell us a little bit about that in the last few minutes? Sure. So I should say that my history is as a science journalist, and I've spent my career looking at why illness happens and how we can heal. And that, of course, uh, if listeners know my book, The Autoimmune Epidemic, I looked at how environments can help fill the immune system, which I think of sort of like a barrel. You know, lots of things come into the human immune system, toxins, infections, dietary habits, um, and genetics. And eventually that barrel spills over into disease for some because there's that last drop of water that causes it to come rushing and, and overfill, and it's more than the immune system can handle and do well. So when I first read about this research about um, uh, ACEs and adversity and later disease, it hit me like a lightning bolt because I realized that having written about toxic stress and 
chemicals in the environment for so long that I had missed the fact that some people, for some people, this barrel is preloaded not just with genetics but with childhood experiences that have changed the way in which their immune system will function for life. The barrel's level has been reset. And it hit me on a personal level. It made sense to me on a personal level when I had to look at my own childhood. And for me, it was really one event that changed everything, and that was when I was 12. My father, who had taught me how to sail and given me my first Shakespeare book and who was also a writer, he went in for a routine surgery, and there was an error, and he did not come home. And for me, it was as if all the color erased from the world I inhabited, and that color never came back again. It was no one's fault. It was the way it was, and I lost my childhood in a moment. And so I realized that this research, it made sense to me that what had happened to me when I was 12, would change my immune system for life in my very cells. That made profound sense to me. And as someone who was trying to help women with chronic illness, I felt I had to put my shoulder behind the wheel and get this information out there. Well, we have, I, I could uh, continue. I would like to continue the interview longer. We have to have you on again. Uh, we don't, Happy we to. Only have, yeah, we only have a minute left, but I, and I do want to mention, obviously, your book again, Childhood Disrupted, How Your Biography Becomes Your Biology and How You Can Heal, Donna Jackson Nakazawa. And you can buy the bookstore online, bookstores everywhere. Just tell us we, so we can kind of continue with at least the conversation online with you uh, in terms of the information. What website can we go to? So you can go to donnajacksonnakazawa.com, but I would say the most robust conversation right now is going on on Facebook at Donna Jackson Nakazawa Author, and people can find me there and join us. There's a Twitter conversation going on, and they can also find out more on aces2high.com, where we are partnering with the website aces2high and acesconnection.com to have this conversation on a much wider level. Great. Thank you so much, Donna. This was great. Great interview. What a pleasure. Thank you, Catherine. We're going to have to say goodbye, and I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.